White Sox. White Sox. Go, 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 go. Call your sons. Call your daughters. Holy cow. You can't put it on the board. Yes. Yes. It's a perfect game. Win Echo. Grand Slam. A White Sox winner and a world championship. Jimenez. He's your hero tonight. Thanks, Cubs. The dynamic duo of Herb Lawrence and Chris Tannehill. Those two are like a tag team, you know. Come with me to Southside of Chicago. Hi, this is Jim Tomey, and the best White Sox talk is on Locked On Sox Podcast with Tanny and Herb. Hello, and welcome back to Locked On Sox. My name is Herb Lawrence. With me, as always, is Chris Tannehill. Chris, how are you doing on this Sunday afternoon? Oh, doing pretty well here, Herbie. I got my Vietnamese coffee here. I'm ready to get down with some podcasts tonight, okay? We got a couple mailbags here, hopefully. We got a big week ahead of us. We're after this. We're recording with our guy Sully from the Locked On uh, Podcast Network. Uh, he does his thing with Locked On Baseball, and uh, that'll be fun talking to Sully tonight. And then later on in the week, I'm thinking Wednesday or Thursday, depending on how these episodes shake out. We're going to be talking uh, to our guy Sean from Hot Ones, the very popular mm-hmm. web series where people, you know, they get big and bad and think they can down uh, the hot chicken wings, and uh, they are always, always, almost always, uh, every single time, uh, they do poorly. And and then our guy Sean just asks them questions as as they're dying on the other side <laughs> of the table across from him. So he, he grew up a Sox fan, and so I'm looking forward to talking to him tomorrow uh, on Monday. That will air later on in the week. So I'm pretty excited about all the things going on in our little world. What about you? How you doing? I'm doing fine. This has been great rest. Uh, I've been off of uh, the score for about a week plus, and so I'm feeling good, uh, rejuvenated, ready, and willing to go back to work. Usually, you know, this time of the year, you're like, ugh, football. And then, you know, Bears won, so that improves my mood immediately. But, yeah, uh, otherwise, I am in a great move. We're about to move to the uptown area, mm. and uh, that's going to probably happen at the end of the month. We're getting a nice new apartment. It's going to be excellent. Uptown baby for the crown baby? That's where we're going to get it down, baby. <laughs> All right. Um, so before we get started with the mailbag here, um, got a lot of emails coming in about Adam Eaton. Uh, like the, the, the bag became overflowing uh, after the Adam <laughs> Eaton acquisition. What was that, on a Wednesday already? I don't remember. A week's gone by so fast. But, um, yeah, I haven't talked to you in about a week because we kind of front-loaded the episodes last week. But one thing I wanted to get to here real quick we did not get a chance to mention it. I mentioned it briefly at the end of one of the episodes last week, but I didn't get a chance to talk to it, talk about it in, in detail. And there's a couple of things I want to get to regarding it, but is the uh, the passing of Dick Allen. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is a guy who, you know, won an MVP for the White Sox in 1972. And, you know, you know him for the iconic Sports Illustrated photo with the cigarette dangling from his mouth, juggling baseballs and the super sweet red and white pinstripe uniform uh, back in the 70s, the Southside Hitman, which I'm wearing the shirt right now, uh, you know, accidentally. Uh, of course, teammates with Bill Melton, uh, the great Chuck Tanner as their manager, uh, Steve Stone a little bit on those teams there. But, uh, you know, this is a guy who was a, a, a giant among men, among the people that he played with, and, and people seem to adore Dick Allen and you know we won't get too much into it because obviously we didn't see him play um, but mm-hmm. just a, a, a big loss for the White Sox family his stint on the south side was was not a long one uh, just three seasons but he did win an MVP award and when you talk about Jose Abreu winning one recently and then Frank Thomas Nellie Fox and Dick Allen that's it that's the MVP club for the White Sox so it's a very small fraternity 
and the baseball world is going to miss uh, Dick Allen. And just a quick thing, like, you know, when I talk about Dick Allen to people like my dad and other people that were around and I've used like, you know, a lot of the older folks as a, as a great resource when talking about Dick Allen the past few days, um, just a few things anecdotally, you know, unanimously respected across the board among, you know, everyone who I talked to who saw the White Sox play and who was a fan of the White Sox in the 70s. Like, they loved watching Dick Allen hit. You know, they talk about, like, him hitting these line drive home runs that never really got more than 15 feet in the air, just line shots out of the park. And, you know, you talk about great seasons in White Sox history. He got uh, on base at a 420 clip in his MVP season of 1972. But also another thing that people mention is that the White Sox in the early 70s uh, were pretty much a shit show. And there was rumors about mm-hmm. the team moving possibly to Seattle. This is before the inception of the Mariners. And attendance was bad. The team was bad. You're talking about the White Sox coming off a decade in the 60s where the Yankees were just running rampant on the American League. And the White Sox were similar to now where they're always just like just not good enough. And there were some bad teams. There were some good teams there in the 60s for the Sox. But fan attendance started to slide a little bit. Then they acquired Dick Allen from the Phillies. And all of a sudden he puts together this MVP season. The ballpark started to fill up again. And, you know, this is not, you know, hyperbole, but several people said, the franchise was on the brink, and Dick Allen sort of came in and almost saved the franchise from from relocating because of the the passion and energy he brought back to the ballpark uh, by, by using his MVP season and his uh, big personality uh, for the White Sox. So he will definitely be missed. I don't know if you had anything you wanted to add to that, but I wanted to make sure that we, that we didn't start the week without mentioning uh, Dick Allen. So, yeah, a guy whose legacy has been much maligned, where. Uh, people who were actually around during the time that he was there uh, will say that, you know, all the stuff they had to go through, especially in Philadelphia, uh, made him the way he was with the media, a little br- abrasive. So he doesn't get the the same shine where he has numbers that are Hall of Fame worthy. He doesn't get the same shine because, you know, it's a media driven thing. And the narrative is Richie Allen was hard to be around. So I wish that he would have got this this uh, call to the hall, which I think will happen later on. Uh, I think the Veterans Committee meets sometime this month. I think he'll get that call to the hall posthumously, which is sad, um, but know that his numbers stack up with some of the best players in the game. So it's sad that he's gone. And, um, yeah, for being a White Sox MVP, which is very, very uh, short list, He's uh, one of the greatest players in White Sox history, and in a short time he was here. So rest in peace to Dick Allen. Yeah, and one more thing here. You know, he, he's my kind of guy, Dick Allen. And that's the the ironic thing is, you know, you know, sort of guys that, that were a little bit older than us, they always kind of looked at Frank Thomas like with a side eye because he was a guy that came to prominence in, in the early 90s when the way people viewed professional athletes shifted a little bit. Like when they started making big money, people started to resent athletes, and you know it, it, the pressure was a lot. I think it was you could say that it's it's a lot harder to be an athlete in this modern era. I think because of all the scrutiny that comes along with it. Like back in the day, you get ripped in the newspaper and not on radio because sports talk radio wasn't around yet. But now you have a lot more at stake as an athlete, and 
But you you talk about Dick Allen. He was a guy that was abrasive at times and, you know, didn't deal well with the media at times, but still pretty much unanimously loved by White Sox fans. So I think that that's something to, to consider a little bit. Uh, you know, even though the media saw him one way, the fans saw him the complete opposite way, as opposed to now the media can sort of drive the narrative of a player. Back then, Dick Allen unanimously loved by Sox fans and, you know, certainly uh, backed all of it up with his play on the field. But he was my kind of guy, Herbie. And uh, this is from the 1974 All-Star Game. took place at Three Rivers Stadium uh, in Pittsburgh. And Dick Allen sporting the classic powder blue jersey, uh, one of the best uniforms in White Sox history. It would be great if they brought mm-hmm. that jersey back. Maybe if they want to honor Dick Allen a little bit, bring this jersey back because I don't think they get rid of eighty threes. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fine by me. Uh, I, that's coming from me. But yeah, you can you can dump the old eighty three. That's fine if you want to honor Dick Allen. But this is from the nineteen seventy four MLB All Star Game, and this sort of just personifies uh, everything you need to know about Dick Allen in a minute and twenty seconds. Dick Allen, who showed up here at 18 minutes to 8 <laughs> with an 8.30 starting time, is in the starting lineup, voted by you fans. I guess Dick Williams, glad to have his bat here, the heaviest bat in the majors. Ball one, what a year he's having. He's hit four homers in his last five games, 10 RBIs in those five games. He leads the majors in homers with 26. Allen's seasonal average is 302. 70 RBI. The Rod Carew were not up there with that 380 some batting average. Just felt to have a shot at a triple crown. We have two handheld cameras here tonight. First time in baseball history. He uses probably the heaviest bat in the majors. But boy, how he pulls that trigger. He can really get it around. One of the few guys that can loop the bat. He's got a hitch. He loops it, but he sure does get that bat in the strike zone when that ball's there. Joe Gears. He slams it in the left field for a base hit. Carew scores. Jackson makes the turn and holds it second, and the American League leads two to one. An RBI for Dick Allen. That's the one thing's got to impress you about all-star competition. When you can get two hitters like Jackson and Allen back to back in the same lineup, they can just devastate you. And they'll scare you, and I think they frighten Messersmith just a shade right then. Yeah, a little snapshot in time there, the 1974 All-Star game, uh, and the great Chuck Gowdy on the call along with Joe Gargiola. And that's it right there. Heavy bat. You know, and I went back in some of the other all-star games that he participated in. How about this for a, for a, a three guys in a lineup that you have to face? It was it was Yaz, Dick Allen, and Reggie Jackson all in the lineup for the American League. That's that's a tough go. Yeah, <laughs> folks. <laughs> yeah, you throw three curveballs and tell them go somewhere else. Absolutely. Don't throw those guys fastballs. So yeah, that that that's it. I you know I like that Dick Allen showing up just a few minutes before start time. Ready, ready to rock and ready to rake right there, man. But that had to have been an exciting time if you're a White Sox fan. If, if all of our uh, older listeners checking us out, we hope we did him a, a little bit of justice there. But go back and watch some videos. Look at the numbers, man. And I, and I think he'll be getting that call to the Hall of Fame uh, this 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 winter. So it's sad, though, when, when a guy goes in and he deserves it. He goes in after he passes. You saw that with uh, with Ron Santo. This little bit different circumstances. Um, he should have been in a long time ago. You know, but I guess uh, we are evolving a little bit the way we look at these numbers, uh, you know, nevertheless. So uh, shall we open the bag? Let us do it. All right. First, before we open the mailbag, this episode of Lockdown White Sox is brought to you by Built Bar. Built Bar, it's the best tasting protein bar 
ever. And somehow, someway, Built Bar keeps coming up with funky fly flavors like every single day. And they're even delicious errs, if that was even possible. They've got 18 amazing flavors, including the six new flavors that you guys have come to know about here. Caramel brownie, cookies and cream, cherry barcia, lemon almond cheesecake, carrot cake, and apple almond crisp. And don't forget, they still have the 12 classics that you know and love so well. Also, you got mint brownie, orange, toffee, almond, coconut, peanut butter brownie. You've heard me in professing my love for German chocolate. They got that too. Built Bars are always covered in 100% chocolate. They're soft and so easy to chew. They're not all grainy and, and tough like a lot of those other protein bars that you may have had on the market. They're great if you're trying to lose or maintain weight while still indulging in a delicious snack. If you're doing the keto diet, they're perfect for that because they are low-calorie, low-carb, low-sugar, but high in protein. Head over to BuiltBar.com right now. If there's someone in your life who's trying to get an early start on a 2020 New Year's resolution or someone who you know loves a good, healthy snack, get over to BuiltBar.com right now because you can get a free cooler with purchase while supplies last. Give the gift of Built Bar this year, why don't you? And don't forget our promo code Locked On. That'll get you 20% off your next order once again that's promo code locked on for 20 percent off at builtbar.com built bar it's the best tasting protein bar ever let's open the mailbag for mailbag monday for december 14 2020 83 wrong button oh i fat fingered it i'll tell you what we love emails we love your emails in particular how do they get us their emails herbie Send your emails to LockedOnSocks at gmail.com. Emails, questions, whatever, comments. It doesn't even have to be White Sox or baseball. LockedOnSocks at gmail.com is the way you get to us. And a lot of you guys have been getting to us this whole offseason. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I try to do my best here to to summarize these emails, but we got a ton on Adam Eaton Day. <laughs> and so basically this is like almost like a hybrid of a lot of those emails. Um First one coming in from Dan from Georgia just starts off by saying, what the hell? Can we get a breakdown of Eaton versus Engel and why the Sox view this as an upgrade? Sorry, I'm at work and just don't get this move. Second day of the winter meetings, Han is either straight trash or the most impatient GM in baseball. It's Dan from Georgia. Rick Han, I hope you have your Teflon suit here. Uh, just to, to recap, <laughs> we, we've, we've had a chance to let this digest a little bit. How do we feel about the whole Adam Eaton signing. I, I think we could say the Sox are a better team than the team that, mm -hmm. that, that broke, uh, that, you know, that, that got, uh, you know, the loss handed to them in Oakland there. But how are we feeling about this Adam Eaton thing uh, almost uh, a week removed? I was on earlier with the Pinwheels and Ivy uh, crew last I think, Friday. I saw that. I was watching that while working. <laughs> yeah, and so I was telling them, why like you know a good deal when you see it like if the white Sox win the white Sox got lancelin you had a little pain because ah dane dunny but then you're like lancelin's awesome this is gonna be awesome no rationalizing deal at all you're you're good for it with the adam eaton thing people are like why even people who kind of like the deal it's they still in their heart of hearts have to say like yeah but also with all the stuff out here why are we setting the market and trying to rush to get Adam Eaton? Because truth be told, there's not been a lot of people signed in free agent deals yet. Secondly, like, who's going after Adam Eaton? Like, the Nationals, who they won a championship with him, were like, no, nah, we're good. We're real good, guys. Bye. Um, and, you know, the White Sox know him, so I never thought, I mean, you would joke about it all the time. And 
half the time I'm like, come on, Tanny. And the other time, I'm like, fuck. It was like trigger something. Like, God damn it, Tanny, stop bringing him up. You're going to put the, you know, you know, mention the devil and you're going to show up on the wall. And he did. He showed up. It just doesn't make sense. Like, he's on the wrong side of 30. He's coming off a bad year in 2020, but that's, you know, I don't put too much pressure on the stats. I think the decline was happening in 2019. He's above average hitter that year, I think, with a weighted runs created plus of 104, but just over it. Like, when it was the White Sox, he was doing work. He had a F4 of over 14 in the three years here. Four years in Washington is just over four. It's just over four wins total for that whole time. So he's, of course, going down as a player. He's not the player that left here in Chicago. And you had so many other options. If you didn't want to go the George Springer route, you could have went the Michael Brantley route, which is totally off the table now because he can't play anywhere on the field because um, Adam Eaton's there and they're probably going to keep Eloy over there. So that's fucked. You had so many options you can trade for. I don't know why in December, the middle of December, they're rushing out to sign this guy. It like It's like, I don't know, they're trying to be a heel and do – things that would fuck around with their uh, fan base because the Tony Russa thing, no one likes this thing. I've yet to find a fan that's saying positive, a hundred percent positive things about this deal. I don't know. I it just, um, they're a better team, but I can guarantee one thing like if the White Sox ever win the world series with Adam Eaton. It won't be because of Adam Eaton. He'll probably contribute a little bit. This move that you make has to be kind of a splashy move. Not a move that you got to rationalize. And that's why I'm pissed about it, other than Adam Eaton being a total D-bag. I'm going to mark that um, for if, if, if Adam Eaton scores a winning run in a World Series game. Uh, hopefully that's a clincher. I'm going to mark that right there. Uh, and then send it to old takes <laughs> exposed. Yeah, yeah. A, I don't know why. The, that should be the, 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 the trophy. That should be the thing. I should be like... Herb was wrong again while Adam Eaton told another World Series trophy. Look, you know, I'm not the biggest Adam Eaton fan. You know, I, obviously it was on my mind all those times that I joked about it. I was like, ah, I could see them doing it because the White Sox, if, to me, if anything, you know, I don't want to label them as, as cheap because, you know, the Eaton deal, it wasn't cheap. Like, you know what I mean? It wasn't a couple million. It was like seven million bucks. And this year, like, you know, that, that's that got a little bit of a weight, of weight to it, but I think the White Sox ultimately are a team that's just scared to take a chance. And they felt like – I always – you know, I'm going to call bullshit on myself because I'm always talking about known commodities. Like, get yourself a guy that's a known commodity, proven track record, and, and all that stuff so there's little mystery once the guy gets here. But this is almost that – to the to the opposite end like bad a bad commodity you know what i mean like mm-hmm. and again i think people can evolve and adam eaton spoke about that in great length and i think maybe he'll be a different guy this time around and there's some stronger personalities in the clubhouse here that, that he'll have to contend with and you know i i think world series experience in a modern modern day matters because certainly the manager doesn't have that so i think maybe that does matter a little bit um who the hell knows if it's going to work out if they'll end up platooning engel and eaton which I'd be fine with. They said ultimately that was LaRusse's call. How are they going to use him? You know, I, I think that's going to be it for the outfield acquisitions, which really, it, it, that, that hurts me a little bit that they didn't try to swing for something a little bit bigger. You know, the guy Ozuna. Yeah, Marcelo Zuna still sitting out there, man. Like he just—he was an MVP runner-up to a guy in his own team, and here but he is, just sitting there hanging out. We we talked on the Pinwheels and Ivy about 
he could still be on the team As because he can be moved to the DH spot. Yeah, that would be great. Um, let me just his, his defense is woof, friends. Yeah, yeah, and that's you know one of the reasons why I get why maybe the Sox were apprehensive at first. I don't think anyone in the world envisioned that type of year from Ozuna last year, even though mm-hmm. I was very excited when it was rumored the Sox were going to go after him. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that'll, that'll work. 30 home runs easily, you know, and that was before the, the pandemic and all that stuff. But here's what Rick Hahn had to say about how they view Eaton and, and as far as the, the measurables go and why they think he's a, a bounce-back uh, candidate in 2021. I mean, he's had some health issues, unfortunately, the last few years. Knock on wood, those all appear to be behind him. Uh, you got to be careful with that. That's an industry term inside baseball here. The term knock on wood, uh, that means that they really don't know, and they know it's a bad move potentially, but they're just hoping that they can get one good year out of the guy. Uh, I'll go knocking ahead. on wood means you agree with John Gruden. <laughs> yeah, knock on wood if you're with me, man. All right, let's finish up here with what Rickon said about Adam Eaton. Uh, obviously passed our physical and everything checked out fine. Uh, additionally, some of the underlying numbers, the way the ball was coming off the bat, his foot speed, not uh, we haven't seen. Wait, how about that physical, by the way? Like, they can't tell you everything in the physical. I can imagine the doctor being like, yeah, he's healthy, but this guy's just a dick. <laughs> <laughs> Like, like, I need to ask you for that opinion, Doc. He's, he's, got he's writing that in the notes section. <laughs> yeah, it just so abrasive. Like, oh, God, just fucking uh, let me do the reflex thing, you dick. Uh, all right. uh, material deterioration in those underlying skills, which gives us optimism uh, going forward. And, you know, historically, if you look at the entirety of his career, he's been a guy who's grinded out at bats, played solid defense, and shown the ability to get on base and even do a little bit of damage versus right-handed pitching. So uh, that that fits with what we're trying to do. So they believe that, you know, here's a guy, and Rick, you know, Adam Eaton eventually mentioned on his Zoom chat how, you know, 2020 was a year full of mental hurdles. And, you know, it's important to call ourselves out on that stuff. Like, we applaud everyone who had a great year in 2020. But we always say, ah, you know, just be careful with people who had a bad year and all of a sudden they acquire someone that had a bad year and we're going to, you know, hammer the White Sox all of a sudden. So we have to, you know, take our own advice that way. You know, I believe that for a guy, Adam Eaton's got two young kids, I believe, you know, that's 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 a tough situation. So you see a lot of stars in baseball that struggled in 2020. So if he bounces back. And I think he will, maybe not, he won't be what he was, you know, when he was with the White Sox, because that was, you know, so long ago, but I think he won't be as bad as he was in 2020, and I'm hoping in in spurts, in, in shorter lengths of time, he'll be an effective uh, tool for the White Sox in terms of a, a guy getting on base at the bottom of a lineup, turning the lineup over to the big boppers at the top. I think that would be the ideal way that they use Adam Eaton, so, uh, but enough. Yeah, that would, but I feel like Tony Russo's old school tendencies be like, ah, oh, this is a top of the order guy, which his OBP plays. If he's that guy that he was with the White Sox, I have no problem with that. That's the problem. I think he's not that guy anymore. Where I think he'll be better served and for the team if he's at the bottom of the lineup. And like you said, that would be the perfect way to use Adam Eaton. Now, I just have a strong feeling that that's going to mess things up because Timmy's like, dude, I've been the leadoff guy and I've been pretty damn good. So, calm down to be changing my role i want to be the leadoff guy i crave that yeah i don't know who ultimately it should be tim anderson obviously hitting leadoff and we'll get to a little bit of tim anderson in tomorrow's mailbag part two but you know i i think it never hurts to have some depth in that regard guys who are familiar with playing leadoff because you know ta's been hurt a few times the past few years missed extended periods of time and the team really 
uh, slid whenever his, his bat isn't in the lineup and whatever his presence isn't at the lineup at the top. So I think in the event of an injury, I think it is good to have a guy like Eaton there who's got experience in getting on base and setting the table for guys like Eloy, Moncada, and Abreu. So I, I think it's it's never bad to have too many of those guys around. How that will shake out, uh, that I think that'll be one of the dramatic storylines that takes place in spring training is what's this lineup going to look like? Because I, I, you know, you could lose TA if all of a sudden you bounce him back down to seventh. You know, all of a sudden you're back to you know Rick Renteria having him yeah. there when he's winning the batting crown and, and he's hitting seventh. You know what I mean? Like I hope that's not what we're looking at, or I hope Tony doesn't look at him like, oh, speedy guy nine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I hope that's not what happens with T.A., but uh, stay tuned to the podcast and we'll see. And to my point about Dick Allen from earlier, this email we got after our initial recording of Mailbag Monday. So I had to go back and read this email because it was so great and it provides unique context of what I was talking about with the White Sox fans at the time. This email here from Chuck. Chuck writes this. I confess that I'm a member of the most hated group in the country currently, an old white man in his seventh decade of life. Probably not the most desired demographic for your podcast audience. That's not true, Chuck. We always like to learn a few things here or there from uh, people who have been through some stuff. Uh, Chuck continues to say this. But I'm also a lifelong Sox fan, having attended my first Sox game on a hot August night in 1960. After mid-60s, the years until Allen's arrival, there were misery for White Sox fans. Awful, boring, untalented teams, attendance in the 5,000s on a good night, and the sense of dread that the Sox were headed out of town. They had played some home games in County Stadium for a year in the mid-60s, added to that toxic brew that the Cubs had blown it in 69 and became the city and America's lovable losers. The Sox were just pathetic losers that nobody but the rapidly declining fan base cared about. Then had lost their AM station and were on some FM station with a range about 100 miles and they were stuck in the AL West where half the time you could not see the West Coast games on television. Then came the miracle that saved the Sox for Chicago. The Broke Vec hired and rescued Harry Carey from Oakland then hired Roland Heemond and hired Chuck Tanner and the best of all signed Dick Allen. Immediately, Allen became a deity for all those who followed the White Sox. I remember the beat writers of the day saying that he was the greatest Sox power hitter since Joe Jackson, which was for once an understatement. He drove the baseball with a 40-ounce bat, and he threatened to turn the orb into dust. I have never seen anyone in a White Sox uniform hit the ball harder. My favorite story was going into the parking lot after my no-brain job summer job on a Melrose Park assembly line, turning on the radio and hearing that Allen had hit two inside the park home runs Allen jokingly complained that damn he was tired it was a long run around those bases and the center fielder saying that the guy hit knuckleballs Harry Carey once said that in the annual charity game that uh, they played in Wrigley Field that Dick Allen would hit 60 home runs if he played at Wrigley Field and that really ticked off Cubs fans most importantly though he crushed the hated Yankees to be a Sox fan to attend a game when Nancy Faust played the racetrack overture when he came to the plate that thought still sends chills up my 70-year-old spine. It was fantastic. Loved your interview with Cowley. You have a dedicated geezer fan. That's Chuck from Buena Park. Chuck, thank you so much for really providing great vivid detail about what I was trying to express earlier, but without living through the time. That was certainly helpful for your insight and Everyone from all ages are welcome here on this podcast because as White Sox fans, we all share our misery and misery loves company. Uh, next one up here is from our guy, Roger in Greensboro. He says, hey guys, really enjoying the podcast. 
and he was checking in because he uh, enjoyed the Joe Cowley episode. And by the way, thank you everyone who checked out the Joe Cowley episodes, parts one and two. I really enjoyed talking with Joe, smart guy, funny guy, and people enjoyed the stories, and uh, as did we. Uh, but following up to that, Roger says, I wanted to share the special moments between me and Juan Uribe. It's me and Juan Uribe. That's going to be the name of my autobiography, by the way. Um, <laughs> he says this, Juan was my hero of the 2005 World Series. The days following the series, I would corner people saying his dive into the stands for the second out and his pick and throw to first for the final out was remarkable. Absolutely. By the way, just as an aside, if Derek Jeter made that play that Juan Uribe made in Houston, uh, for the mm. second out of game four in the ninth inning, mm. yeah, he'd be, you know, you'd see that play every World Series. Like, they'd have that play in every World Series montage leading up to game one. Like, that, it would be there every single time without a doubt. It's one of the great catches. You talk about moment of leverage, you know, opposing stadium. You know, mm -hmm. thank you, Astros fans, for giving him the room to get in there. But also, you know, the awareness. Joe, I'll never forget that, man. Joe Creedy backing him up, telling him to get the ball back in and – you know, with a runner on base there, it's such a huge play, man. Like, you know, they still would have won the World Series without that play, but who knows what happens, really. You know, you just saw it the year before with the uh, the Red Sox. Like, anything could happen in baseball, so. Yeah, and you don't want, like, you give a chance to have Roger Clemens pitch the fifth game and then Pettit pitch the sixth game, and then you run into a ball out with Oswald, and then you just lose four games in a row if you lose there. So, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so so Roger continues. He goes, uh, anyway, I'm at the corner of Jackson and LaSalle for the World Series parade. One of the double-decker buses turned right in front of me, and I looked up, and there's my man. I screamed, Juan! He looked down, and we locked eyes. He shoots me, and only me, with the double guns and smiles. I'm a 50-year-old man, and 15 years later... I still gush over this moment. Thanks. That's Roger in Greensboro. I love that story right there. Those little moments, man. Those little snapshots you remember. And to have Juan Uribe right there, that, that's, a, that's a cool story, man. So thank yeah, you, and, Roger. And those people who always say, you know, athletes don't matter and what they do just shouldn't matter to the public. Moments like that, which it's fleeting for Juan Uribe. He doesn't remember that. But just pure joy, looking at a dude, giving him a personal human touch. A guy still remembers it 15 years later. That, like, he remembers that fondly. He's like, oh, man, what a great guy. And I'm sure that went a long way into his fandom, too. Like, from then on, he was like, man, whatever Juan Uribe does, I'm in. <laughs> Absolutely. That's what, like, Sean Dunstan, for me, he signed my first autograph as a player, and I was like, fuck everybody who ever talks <laughs> shit about Sean Dunstan. <laughs> Sean O'Meara's the best. When he went to the Giants, it's like, let's go. I tossed my bat after I got a hit, like Sean, for a couple of bats, and then motherfuckers like mm, stop. And then uh, so yeah, that those things go far away. I wish more athletes understood the power they have in that regard. That's a, a grown ass adult, and he still remembers that. You know, thirty five years old, and he was like, "That's awesome." Yeah, just thinking about it, like he was as old as I as basically as as I am now. I'm a little bit older, but like and then still like thinking it's cool in the moment. But it was quite a time, man. I you know for all you younger listeners out there, like it sucks. You know it was it was just a magical time to to be a White Sox fan. Hopefully, uh, you'll see that again here very soon. But I think you know a little show meeting on the air, a little production meeting. I think I want to sol solicit solicit that as a topic for next Monday or Tuesday. Like I want to hear 
people's, you know, you don't have to send an email just with that. But if you have an email, you can put this as a PS. I want to hear your first autograph story uh, with a player, like outside of like a, a sports card show or socks fest or something like that, unless there's a funny story to go along with it. But yeah, I, I want to hear like, what was your first player autograph and, uh, and the story behind that? I, I, mine was, was Jack McDowell. It was at socks fest, but I told the story here on the podcast, but me and my dad were sitting by the elevators and, uh, and it walked, you know, here comes black Jack McDowell walking to the elevator. So I was, you know, I was not having a good day. I, I, you know, came up short on a lot of autographs that day. Uh, just me and my big hurt candy bar. And then my dad flags uh, Jack McDowell down and uh, gets him to stop for a second. And he gave the autograph. No problem. So me for oh, forever. Black Jack McDowell stand right here. So I want to hear your yeah, guys' like- stories. Where you're like, fuck uh, New York fans, they deserve to get flicked off. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He did so, that for the White Sox. Good job, Blackjack. Yeah. So uh, I want to hear those stories about your first encounter with your first autograph as a kid, uh, especially in an unconventional setting, restaurant, bar, on the street, whatever. Just send those in, LockedOnSocks at gmail.com. Wrapping it up here, we've got our guy Mike Victor, and he was checking in about Adam Eaton once again. But, you know, in closing his email, he asked this. Do you think they should bring back column A or what better options are out there? Do you trust someone like Jace Fry maybe to make the leap to be a ninth inning guy? I'd love to hear your bullpen thoughts. Talk soon and stay warm. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate you. All right, Herb. So if you're if you're Rick Hahn, you got your Teflon suit and you've got uh, Jerry Reinsdorf's checkbook. And how, how are you going to fill out the rest of this bullpen if you're Rick Hahn? You know, when we did wrap up and I was thinking like the White Sox are not going to resign uh, column A, I was like, okay. They do have internal candidates that can replace them. Of course, Jace Fry is a little far off, but you can have Aaron Bummer. Uh, and I like what I saw of Cody Hoyer and Matt Foster. So those are inner, you know, candidates there that can do it. And even Garrett Crochet, if they really wanted to give him that. But I think all those guys are better suited in the roles that they are in. So with the White Sox, you know, cheaply acquiring these players that they have got so far, Lance Lynn. For eight million, I believe, and then Adam Eaton for seven million. Not, you know, it's shrewd moves by them, and you have a lot of money to spend on a closer. I usually don't like that. Um, the the specific closer spot, like you're spending money because he is a closer instead of spending money because he's getting out. But in this case, you need to secure it. And Liam Hendricks is out there, yep. Australian guy, a guy that would be great for the White Sox here, and uh, I'm sure our guy Jason. The Australian Sox fan would I, love that. I, I um, Yeah, that was the, one of the first guys that I think it was uh, – I forgot who it was that linked the White Sox to to Hendricks, but uh, now all of a sudden the Mets are barking up that tree, and we'll, we'll talk – Yeah, we'll talk about the James McCann thing in the next episode. Yay, 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 yay. But Liam Hendricks is a guy who – they wrote him a little bit hard. The A's did last year, a guy that was uh, in a walk year. So and put him away wet? <laughs> well, yeah, we'll see. Um, but <laughs> – they he was he was a little bit used excessively, but and I kind of like that because what he did to the White Sox, which is a pretty damn good lineup, and he was out there throwing fifty pitches in a winner go home situation after getting used a lot the day before, like. That's good stuff right there, man. That's what you want out of your reliever, a guy who's who's not going to fall apart after throwing 20 pitches and, you know, love his his, his love his stuff, love the the fire, the intensity. Loved what he said about the White Sox too uh as the season ended. He had a lot of good things to say about the White Sox, so maybe he was setting himself up there. 
Um, you know, but it, it, the Mets are on the prowl. That's my my number one target right now. I would think in free agencies to solidify that bullpen. Man, you need some known commodities out there, and I would hate to be in this Lance Lynn window where you have all of a sudden one year. And you, you have this is your best opportunity to win a World Series is the year that's in front of you right now. I would mm-hmm. hate to have it where you don't have a known commodity at the back end of the bullpen, a guy that's been there, done that. And I definitely don't like Jace Fry to do that. I know they had him close a game. I think it was the, the in the Cincinnati series last year, but I don't even think it was a save situation. Maybe it wasn't. But I don't like him in that spot. I think you know what he is already at this point. He's uh, up by a lot, behind by a lot guy, maybe a guy that you can throw in there. Uh, on a day where guys are, are overworked and maybe you can get by with them, you know, fine. But ninth inning, that that's a lot right there. And, you know, they do have some good arms down there in that bullpen, though. So if even if they don't get Liam Hendricks, I, always, I would like for them to have a guy who's done it before. But I like the idea also or taking your most your best relief pitcher on that day in the most high leverage spot in the game and using that person there and not being married to it. But we know Tony La Russa's track record. You know, he loves using the bullpen, but also he likes guys with def- defined roles, I feel like. So I don't know if that's going to work. So hopefully Tony can pressure uh, Jerry into into solidifying and fortifying this bullpen right here. But, yeah, I'm hoping Liam Hendricks is still on the radar for the White Sox. As far as Jace Fry, not, you know, nice piece, but I, I wouldn't put him in a high-leverage situation because you want guys who have done the job in every you know spot on in your lineup, in your rotation, in your bullpen. You know, this is – it's no more messing around time here. No more leaving things to chance. Like this is your competitive window. Get guys who know how to do the job. So that that's how I would answer the bullpen questions. Now, uh, stay tuned. We'll see what 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 um, other things uh, transpire here with the bullpen. It worries me because it's one of the first guys that the Sox were linked to for the bullpen. All of a sudden, things go quiet, and then all of a sudden you hear the Mets in on it. You know, maybe it's just Liam Hendricks trying to get the most money possible, which I certainly don't uh, begrudge him for, but. Uh, Rick Hahn did say the other day that Jerry Reinsdorf will spend to get one final piece for this roster. So here's what he said about that. Don't don't go giving away my tricks to Jerry if he's listening to the Zoom call. No, you're right. There's a competitiveness there uh, that historically when there's been that finishing piece, uh, we've been able to find a way to sort of stretch to, to make it, to get it done. Uh, usually that's not something we raise in December. So we'll just uh, let that be for now. So, yeah, I like how, like, you know, this team is still not, like, in the top top five or ten in payroll, but we're talking about stretching the payroll to, like, maybe put a team in the position to win a World Series. How ridiculous is that? But uh, there there you have it there. Hey, NBA fans, listen up. The Locked On NBA podcast is getting you ready for the start of the regular season with a special week of team preview podcasts all this week. Plus, waiver wire editions from Locked On Fantasy Basketball and rookies to watch from draft guru Chad Ford. I'll be turning into the preview of Locked On Bulls, as I know you will also. Matt Peck and our guy Jordan Malley do that show. They do a fantastic job. Subscribe to Locked On NBA wherever you get your podcasts. But that's all I got today for this week's edition, part one of Mailbag Monday, Herbie. All right. That is Chris Tannehill. Follow him on Twitter at Chris Tannehill. I'm Herb Lawrence. Echnoall23 is how you follow me, and the show is at Locked On Socks on both Twitter and Instagram. So if you want to participate in next week's Mailbag Monday, talk to us Tuesday edition of Locked On Socks, email us at LockedOnSocks at gmail.com. So for Chris Tannehill, I'm Herb Lawrence. Thank you for joining us for this Mailbag Monday edition of Locked On Socks.